Hello everyone, and welcome to AI Unleashed, Beyond the Code podcast. I'm your host, Grace, and I'm thrilled to have you here with me today. Before we dive into today's topic, I want to encourage you to hit that subscribe button. By subscribing, you'll never miss an episode of our everyday podcast, filled with insightful discussions, fascinating interviews, and so much more. Now, let's get something straight from the start. Today, we won't be talking about AI. Nope, not at all. We're taking a break from the technical jargon and exploring intriguing topics that go beyond the code. So whether you're an AI enthusiast looking for a change of pace or someone curious about the world beyond the digital realm, this podcast is for you. Get ready for captivating conversations, thought-provoking insights, and a whole lot of fun. All right, let's jump right into today's episode. But first, don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you can join us every day on this exciting podcast journey. Now, let's get started. Starting today, we are going to talk about everything Halloween today, we are talking about the complete history of Michael Myers' 40-year timeline. Michael Myers, here we come. Michael Audrey Myers, Edith and Donald's second and last child, was born in 1957. Myers, after his younger sister Judith, who is nine years old. Here I break down the most recent iteration of the Michael Myers persona, as seen in 40th Year Timeline. That covers all Halloween films, from the original to Halloween, 2018, Halloween Kills, and Halloween Ends. The Haunted Train. In the majority of cities, all of the different lines converge at one central hub. That would be the film Halloween, 1978, for the Halloween Express. There are a few other paths that can be taken from there. The first has Michael becoming a part of a cult that worships an old demon, the second involves Michael escaping after being imprisoned for 20 years. Either Michael gets blown up by Dr. Loomis or he is arrested and held away for 40 years in the 40-year timeline. So, in this timeline, he comes from a well-known background, but not totally. The plot would suddenly turn. Michael Myers's head tilt and other identifying features are explained, along with the significance of his Jaws inspiration, in this video. The question on everyone's mind, has Michael Myers met his end? Watch till the very end of the video to find out. Heavy Metal Bringing back the fear, Michael. Let us formally welcome you to the Annals of Horror. Writing partners David Gordon Green and Danny McBride intended to make the Michael Jackson biopic A. Once again, Myers is terrifying. This was accomplished by harking back to the source, which had neither. Character histories and expositions that don't go overboard. David Gordon Green, the director, and producer Jason Blum have both said that they took a walking. The boundary between preserving tradition and transforming it into something fresh. For instance, Michael's appearance and demeanor are more faithful to the original than ever before. When they originally introduced Michael, they didn't show much blood and gore, but they weren't opposed to increasing it to keep up with recent slashers. 1970s, a time of greater conservatism. The modern bogeyman's most crucial step was returning to his or her mystique. And it shows in his writing, acting, and even the shape of his trademark mask. McBride, that mask makes it seem like the person behind it has no feelings at all, and that's terrifying. 
Your own fears can be superimposed onto that mask. The mask was designed by Chris Nelson, a special effects artist, to keep the sadness intact. Character, and many viewers felt it did a good job of resurrecting the dread of what may have been by starting with nothing. Other timelines break the fourth wall by displaying his face, causing him to cry, and providing an explanation. Details from his past, or in other times, just wearing masks that look overly astonished or too angry, to convey his emotions. I'd like to know as little about him or his history and abilities as possible, the director said, during an interview with Halloween Movies. Calm. As the author puts it, I think there was a reason he was called the shape in the original, because in some ways he's more of an essence than he is a traditional character. This is true, but I also believe that by the nature of making a sequel trilogy, additional information about the character is introduced. The premise that Michael Myers is human but yet possesses some sort of supernatural edge, making him nigh-invincible, is revisited here. A person who can function in both the human and supernatural worlds. And we must remember that he is a human being, with enough data, we can begin to identify patterns and draw some inferences. We have a lot to cover, so let's get started, but we need to talk about him without ruining the aura of mystery that has made him a legend for so long. Michael's Early Years Dark Piano Music Michael was the class clown as a kid. He didn't do anything particularly suspicious, but he also didn't seem to do much of anything. Peter McCabe's mom was one of the grown-ups that felt awful for him because of this. Mrs. McCabe would force her kid to play at Michael's house, but Michael would always keep him from leaving his own. He would sit and stare out his sister's window all day. On October 31, 1963, at the tender age of six, Michael is home alone while his parents are gone and his older sister is with her boyfriend. He grabs a knife from the kitchen and follows Judith and her lover upstairs. While brushing her hair, Judith is attacked by the boy, who stabs her multiple times from behind. He just goes outside and waits for his parents to return home and find him standing in front of the house. The wrongdoing he committed. On November 1, he was arrested and turned over to the Juvenile Justice Division of the Illinois Department of Public Safety. A first-degree murder charge was not expected to be filed against him, according to officials at the time. Insane Asylum at Smith's Grove Following the results of the evaluation, it was agreed to have him see a psychiatrist. Michael has been admitted to Smith's Grove Sanitarium with the identification number A-2201. Assigned to Dr. Samuel Loomis, a psychiatrist. His first 15 years at Smith's Grove are not mentioned in the Halloween movies. On the date of Michael Audrey Myers's trial, he must appear before the judge. Are they a must-see if they're on TV? At the age of 21, he will be tried as an adult. For those who are curious, this is one of the supplemental TV sequences shot. Version of the picture that came out in 1978. To make a long tale short, they wanted additional scenes so they could squeeze it into a television slot with more ads. Since Michael's middle initial is revealed to be A in Halloween 2018, one has to wonder if these sequences are still canon in the 40-year timeline. These fabricated events inspired the creation of the character Michael Audrey Myers. Even yet, 
it's not out of the question that this was an intentional Easter egg. Michael marked his door with the word sister before escaping Smith's Grove, as seen in another staged scene. This indicates that he escaped in order to pursue his sister Lori, as seen in Halloween 2. In the 40-year timeline, however, Michael and Lori are not related. Danny McBride, the show's co-writer, has discussed the shift. From the beginning of production on Halloween 2, I advocated for its conclusion to the family mythology setup. I just got the impression that he wasn't quite as menacing there. The point was that the viewers are aware that they are not connected to Michael and hence had nothing in common with him, so the personalization came out as inappropriate. A cause for concern. But if he's picking victims at random, then everyone should be on edge. Michael may have meant sister to refer to Judith, whose grave he visited. After escaping, he or she steals. It's debatable whether or not these extra moments belong in the official canon. I don't think they fit in the 40-year time frame. The supplemental material was filmed with the Halloween 2 cast and crew and first aired in 1980. Immediately prior to Halloween 2, making it obvious that they are supposed to set up that film. Halloween, 2018, takes a bold position in that it ignores all other Halloween films and only pays homage to the original. To imply that the entire events of Halloween 2 were fabricated. Dave, didn't her brother just murder all those kids in cold blood? Allison, no. That's probably simply something that folks made up to make themselves feel better. When Michael turned 21 in 1978, he was scheduled for a re-evaluation in court. Fled from Smith's Grove. While waiting to be picked up by Dr. Loomis and his assistant, Nurse Marion Chambers, he and a few other patients escaped. Michael took their car and drove off in Warren County, Ohio, in the middle of the night. The urban legend nature of the Michael Myers figure is reflected in this. Interpretation All three films, Halloween, 2018, Kills, and Ends, are clearly meant at a younger audience. Those who have heard of Michael Myers but have yet to face him in person as a whole new generation. Similar to a myth or urban tale. Consider the widespread myths that exist in our society. Elements and symptoms tend to repeat themselves. If you pronounce Bloody Mary three times into a mirror lit by a candle, she will emerge. Slenderman will materialize out of nowhere in the midst of a forest, causing video recorders to malfunction. Before the hash-slinging slasher appears, the lights will flash on and off repeatedly. Michael, on the other hand, appears on Halloween accompanied by a legion of ghostly. Those with mental disorders. Throughout this course, I'll highlight other indicators that have been reported by numerous generations of Haddonfield residents and are consistent with the urban legend. First, in 1963, Michael dressed as a clown, armed with a mask, a knife, and a one-piece clown suit, preyed on a teenager who was making out with her boyfriend. In 1978, Michael would once again prey upon teenagers seeking to accomplish the same thing he did in 1978, donning a one-piece jumpsuit, a mask, and a knife. Be Judith's stand-ins in an act. To obtain the suit, he intentionally crashes a mechanic's vehicle and kills the mechanic inside. He decides to steal Judith's tombstone from the cemetery and use it as a memorial for his final act of violence on this night. 
Babysitter Assassinations After breaking into a convenience shop, he steals a Halloween mask, some rope, and two knives, the latter of which become his trademark weapon. His next destination is his long-abandoned childhood house. He gets hungry and consumes a canine here. He also meets Lori Strode, a high school girl who has come to drop off a set of keys for her father, a realtor seeking to sell the home, for the first time. All day long, he shadows her until she finally makes it to her babysitting gig that night. Annie, a neighbor who helps out by watching kids, is the next target. Michael waits in the car, and when she goes to pick up her partner from the garage, he attacks her with a stranglehold. His next targets are Bob and Linda, who just want some peace and quiet at home. To act in accordance with their nature. He puts Annie on the bed next to Judith and the other teen bodies on the floor of the upstairs bedroom. Meyer's grave marker, it's evident he's attempting a reenactment of an incident from his childhood. He locks Linda up in a closet and suspends Bob from the ceiling. Then he turns out all the lights and watches for Lori to come over and see if her friends are okay. When she does, she shows clear signs of distress, but what she discovers next is even more disturbing. Screams Michael carefully pursues her back across the street to the Doyle residence and makes multiple additional attempts on her life, but she puts up a valiant battle, first stabbing him in the chest with the knife he dropped, then stabbing him in the neck with a knitting needle, and finally poking an eye out with a clothes hanger. But Michael Myers is no regular guy, and he comes back to life in a way that's reminiscent of vampires. He seizes the opportunity to terminate the fight by strangling his weary prey, but she pulls off his mask, surprising him. Because of this, he pauses for a second and tries to re-wear it before continuing to assault her. His obsession with the mask is just hinted at, but it clearly plays a significant role. Essential to his method. My original timeline analysis focused on the mask's function inside the ceremony. He's a part of, Michael is just an escaped mental patient in the year 40 timeline. Patients with mental illness frequently have a negative reaction to novel stimuli. Relax typical. Because of this, the walls of all asylums are always painted white and bare of any artwork or other decorations. The employees all wear black uniforms, and the same soothing music is played continuously. Even though it's the same old dull building, patients report feeling more at ease and protected there. This is also true of Mr. Tivoli, a figure from the 40-year timeline. He becomes agitated if his shoelaces aren't neatly tied. Michael killed his sister in 1963 while wearing a mask and a one-piece costume, therefore he feels obligated to use the same outfit and mask to kill on the anniversary here in 1978. The same held true for the future as well. But this minor diversion becomes a major one. That's why I had to shoot him. Six times, I fired at him. What can I say? It was a heart shot. Six times, I fired at him. Shot him six times. For Hanfield's resident monster, this would be an all-time high in terms of destruction. On, and it was inflicted by his own psychiatric doctor, but it didn't knock him out for long, he left the scene and escaped by way of a back alley in only a few short seconds. Michael is unfazed as he is recognized by a young, frightened police officer named Frank Hawkins, 
who fires at him before Michael calmly walks away. Michael ends up behind bars. It appears that the very next thing he does is to relocate his automobile, as it is now parked in front of the former Myers residence. If we consider the fact that at the end of Halloween we can hear someone breathing in the house across the street, it's not hard to conclude that this was his first stop. Considering that he had just been attacked by Dr. Loomis, the person most likely to identify that car, it is understandable that he would want to repark it. Michael re-enters the world on foot and comes upon Lonnie Elam, a young child who had fallen on the sidewalk. Michael doesn't murder children, and he now sees two police officers coming toward him. He vanishes into thin air, as he has done on numerous occasions. He goes back to his childhood home and stands by the window, as he did then. McCabe and Michael had playdates when they were kids, and Michael had recently run across Frank Hawkins, an officer. When Michael unexpectedly encounters McCabe in his home, it's one of the few occasions we see him take off running. He repeatedly knocks the cop into the wall and uses the rest of the stolen rope to to strangle him from the hardware store. McCabe lands three solid blows on Michael's stomach, but Michael can't seem to land any of his own. Seems to notice, and kidnaps him right as Hawkins enters the room with a gun. The inexperienced police, however, strikes his partner instead of the masked criminal. Michael lets go of his meat shield and walks out of the home without flinching as additional gunfire ring out. He's been thinking about his first murder, back in 1963, non-stop tonight. Ultimately, he exits the home and stands in the front yard, just as he did before. Six armed police officers surround him and easily subdue, arrest, and recapture him for another stint behind bars. According to the prison administration, shortly after Myers began his term in the state prison, he was transferred from medium to maximum security because he apparently formulated escape plans. He also acquired a driver's license and route maps through shady means, and made up his own identification documents. Michael Myers' doctor, Loomis, was fired after being shot six times. It's unclear if this happened voluntarily or was forced onto someone. On audio tape, dated January 22, 1979, almost three months after the babysitter murders, he advocates for the death sentence for Myers. I think it's time to call it quits. Michael can only end his suffering by dying. The government, however, hoped to obtain intelligence by keeping Michael alive for research. To Smith's Grove once more. Deeper comprehension of the serial killer's psyche. Because of this, he was most likely sent back to Smith's Grove. I'd like to think that in this video, I'm doing a better job at that than they did in. 55 years of academic research. But as I said before, Michael is more of a spirit than a person. We can presume Loomis was aware of this and was merely being cautious while keeping an eye on Michael. Him incarcerated. Unfortunately, he passed away, and his replacement certainly wouldn't share his goals. Dr. Ranber Sartain, a psychiatrist, will take over Michael's care next. Dr. Sartain got fixated in deciphering Michael's character and skills. As a result, Sartain forms an attachment to his patient and begins to guard him like a creative would guard their masterpiece. Over 50 clinical psychiatrists were consulted, 
all of whom had differing assessments of Michael. Michael has hardly spoken during these 40 years, but Sartain does not view this as a disability but rather a personal choice. Smith's Grove Sanitarium was renamed Smith's Grove State Hospital during the years Michael was held captive there for the second time. Patients are soothed by vintage jazz albums, a courtyard is set up so they can get some fresh air and sunlight every day, and Sartain visits regularly to check on how they're doing. In the mornings with patients one-on-one -on -one to see how they're doing. Michael was finally going to be moved after 40 years of stagnation. Glass Hill, and on October 30, 2018, the 40th anniversary of that day, a new doctor was appointed to the neighborhood. Regarding his initial break out of jail. The masked one is back. Ominous music, doctor. Sartain, the town's most infamous citizen, doesn't get many visitors, so he's used to being alone for long stretches of time. Has limited exposure to Michael in a variety of settings and social situations. I can only image the restrictions this places on him and my guess is that when British investigators. When reporters Aaron Corey and Dana Haynes approached Michael about an interview, Michael eagerly consented in the hopes of learning more about the man behind the long-studied mystery. A meeting was set up for them on the day before the transfer, October 29, 2018. Sure enough, there he is. After being introduced to the reporters, Michael initially ignores them. So, in an effort to get their attention, he pulls out the William Shatner mask he wore during the 1978 shooting spree. However, it seems to irritate everyone except the one patient it was designed for. On the evening of September 30th, all of the patients who would be making the trip were lined up and placed into cages. Transfusion Error The Illinois Department of Corrections refitted a school bus for use by inmates. Strangely, Dr. Sartain stays with him to the end, even offering words of comfort. Given that Michael is a known psychopath, I don't think that's necessary. Don't be anxious, Michael. I'll stand beside you. Even on the bus, he argues that Myers is his patient until he's been proven wrong. Transferred to the care of another. The bus flips over in a ditch on Marlowe Road during the trip. I believe Lori intentionally drove the bus off the road to kill Michael. But things don't work out how they were supposed to. She's very erratic, and she was spotted watching the patient transfer from her car. She shows little emotion upon hearing the news of the tragedy. After being liberated by Sartain, someone, likely Michael, attacks and severely injures. The security personnel and bus driver, allowing the inmates to flee into the night. I bring this up because Dr. Sartain has voiced his displeasure with the fact that so. Although numerous professional psychiatrists had examined Michael, only Dr. Loomis had the unique opportunity to observe him in his natural habitat. A father and son driving by see the collision and get out of the car to investigate. Michael viciously severed the father's throat and then snuck inside their home. Back seat. The youngster runs into the injured guard, who tells him to get the hell out of there. This makes me think Michael attacked the guy to prove his overwhelming power. Has become largely unheard of in the 40 years since. Michael kills the youngster with a sudden choke, and the myth lives on. Him as soon as he re-enters the car, exactly as he did with Annie back in 1978. 
Because of this, he can steal the car again, just like he did the first time he escaped. Reconstructing his attire. Following custom, he visits his sister Judith's gravesite upon arriving in Haddonfield. At the Judith Myers Theater, he discovers that the reporters from the previous day had recorded further material. Cemetery and decides to tag along to the petrol station with them so he can retrieve his mask. When Aaron isn't looking, Myers sneaks into the garage, knocks him out with a punch, and then leaves. Wears his suit without his permission. To further terrify Dana, he bashes another worker in the face and steals his teeth to throw over the stall door of the restroom she is hiding in. Attempt at a pun. Before Aaron's partner, Michael, is killed, he recognizes what's happening and tries to stop it by hitting her in the face with a crowbar. Deaths occur, and Michael is able to regain his beloved mask. There was just one more thing he needed to complete his famous ensemble, and he wasn't going to wait to get it. Meaning what you're saying. On Halloween, he can go unnoticed by dressing up like everyone else in costume. As with his previous rampage, he accidentally knocks over some children but continues on his way. Despite the fact that one youngster gets dangerously close to using the F-bomb. Oof. I don't even K-N boom. Explosion. Zack takes a hammer from the Elrod's shed and attacks Mrs. Elrod with it to get her knife. That finishes the outfit off perfectly. Discordant emotions. After 13 Halloween movies, I realize how crucial Michael's physical look is to his ominous demeanor. Just explain the logic behind that, please. This gets at the heart of why we enjoy scary movies so much. Understand the psyche of a human. What Danny McBride said about what makes Michael so terrifying to him is spot on. He made a comparison between Michael's lack of emotion and the horrific things he does. While committing these acts, which he appears to have. As a result, you may be experiencing what is known as incongruent effect. This phrase refers to the state of having sentiments, mood, or emotions that are at odds with one another. Psychologists talk about incongruent effect when a patient's emotions don't fit their outward demeanor or the norms of the given circumstance. Given that clowns epitomize incongruent effect, it is only right that Michael's first outfit be a clown's. Because of their painted smiles, many people assume that they are always cheerful, even if they are not or if the circumstances do not warrant it. Seeing a clown in the circus probably isn't so unsettling because it's a joyful environment and the clowns are making an effort to entertain. It's unsettling to find a clown hiding in a drain cover, a manhole, or an old, deserted home. We call such effect incongruence. Since human beings have evolved to interact with one another, this kind of behavior feels invasive. As a species, humans have historically huddled together in tribal communities for protection. Intended to keep going. Over millions of years, our brains have honed their ability to read subtle social cues. Because of this, plugs resemble a human face. Why automobiles resemble faces in this way? That's why Iggy Pop's midsection has that sad expression. We have an innate ability to read people's emotions from facial expressions alone. When the person's outward indicators are inconsistent with how they're actually feeling or the context. We notice that, too, because it's a red flag that something's amiss. 
Is this a predator trying to trick us, or do we have a problem with this person? And we have a tribal member who needs healing. While an example, consider Michael's blank, emotionless stare while he slashes at his victims. With conflicting feelings. Michael's expressions of surprise or anger in other Halloween movies just don't have the effect. And that's why Michael needs to remember every part of his signature style. He needs to put his new knife to the test right now. More youth suicides. And he locates an appropriate target in the neighboring residence. This victim was apparently selected at random, but future victims will be selected in order to ensure a established back in 1978 as a custom. Annie and Lori, two teenage babysitters in Hanfield, were his primary targets that year. This time around, he employs the services of Vicky, who watches over a young man named Julian Morrissey. The pattern emerges, as with every good urban tale. Michael sneaks into the house and peers into Julian's bedroom, but he isn't interested in killing children. It just serves to frighten Julian to the point where he rushes downstairs to find assistance. What's with all the ghosts and goblins, pal? Stop talking, Dave. I could make out his breaths. Finally, I spotted him. I've got him in here. There's a monster under the bed. Michael takes refuge in the wardrobe as the room is being cleaned. Vicky goes up to see what's going on, but she doesn't find him because she's not paying attention. Take carefully, Julian's warning. He asks her to close the closet door as she returns him to bed, but she discovers something. Hindering it. Door threshold, rock concert, scream. Vicky throws a chair at Michael, but he is unfazed, so he chases her out of the room. On her way out, she stumbles on the hardwood floor, and Michael is able to drag her back inside and slam the blade into her chest. After killing her, he makes the same cocked head gesture we saw him do when he murdered Bob Sims 40 years ago. Nick Castle, the man hiding behind the mask, explains what happened in this scene. In both the 1978 Halloween and the 2018 Halloween, he plays Myers. He told Entertainment Weekly in an interview that director John Carpenter gave him the directive to tilt his head at that precise moment. I didn't get what he was getting at until I viewed the movie, at which point I thought, oh, how cool, it looks like I'm admiring my kill. What with my analogy of a pinned body to a wall as a pin-up model in my Things You Missed in Halloween video, this makes perfect sense. Michael is ogling a piece of art. Due to Michael's mental illness and his tendency toward routine, Castle, after killing Vicky, was ordered to repeat the head tilt. Certainly, that's how I interpret things. I'm ready to put an end to the speculation on that front. Everything he does before leaving the house is a reference to his murder of Bob Sims, door slams. After killing Vicky, he uses the same bedsheet to hide her body as he did his own. After killing Bob, the killer turns his attention to Vicky's lover Dave, pinning him to the wall with his knife. Deputized at the age of 60, Frank Hawkins arrives to check the commotion and finds Vicky, but Michael is hiding out in a bedroom on the other side of the house, searching for him. Via this mirror's window and out the opening. He looks directly at Lori, the now 20-year-old who eluded him when she was 17 years old. Ultimately, he was unchained. Now that she's 57, she's better prepared, 
and she fires a shot in his direction, which, had she understood she was staring through a mirror, would have at least struck him in the head. As Michael walks outside, Hawkins comes to investigate, but he, too, is unable to hit a target. Michael is able to concentrate again after the discovery of Dave's body. Leave the building and vanish into the darkness. But things are different now. This time Lori sees him coming and shoots him in the left back. Evaporates entirely. For the first time, Lori is taking on the role of the hunter instead of the prey. As the hunter, rather than the prey. Up until now, Loomis was the only one who could frighten Michael away. He runs away, escapes, and finds safety within Elrod's stronghold. Backyard that has tall concrete walls surrounding it. But inevitably, someone else becomes his next easy prey. Impact Oscar Berlucci, a high school senior, has gotten intoxicated and is in a precarious position, ominous music. He mistook Michael for Mr. Elrod and was rejected by his crush. These motion-activated lights illuminate the yard, but every time they go out, Michael manages to inch closer to me. Oscar, dude, where have you been hiding out? Right now, you're acting very suspiciously. It defies logic that Oscar should be unable to move while Michael is, yet if there is any ability, it appears to be concentrated in Michael. Michael's capacity to vanish is emphasized here more than in any other aspect of his character. What sets him apart and makes him terrifying is that while being an enormous, unstoppable force, he is quite crafty. He can be lurking in the shadows or waiting around a corner. There have been numerous occurrences since Lori first saw him outside her classroom window that suggest a place where he'll be present one second and absent the next. Maybe he truly does have the ability to hide in plain sight, and this gives him the freedom to before Oscar can scale the Elrod's fence, get the upper hand and stab him in the back. After hearing the commotion, Oscar's crush Allison Nelson returns and the lights go out. Turn back on, and Michael seemed to welcome her back. Michael goes for a walk as she screams and flees away to call the police for help. Explanation of the recharge interval On 11th Street, close to St. Park, he is spotted and reported, thereafter, he runs into a police SUV containing Hawkins, Sartain, and Allison. Hawkins hits the gas after spotting the town's villain. Michael walks straight at the car until the moment of impact, proving he observed an alarming lack of concern about physical harm. Michael is temporally incapacitated as Hawkins rams him with the car, sending him tumbling to the sidewalk. Gone cold, knocked out. So far, we've seen Michael knocked out several times, all of them occurring during his 1978 spree. He dies after being fired over a balcony, having his eye gouged out, and being stabbed in the chest. When this happens, I call it his recharge period since he lies there until he can muster the energy to resume his rampage. The fact that Michael is able to refuel in 2018 is a terrible prospect, and this scene is our first glimpse of that. Earlier, we watched him take a bullet to the chest and keep on going. He may have grown even stronger during his time in captivity, as it takes a hit from a 5,000-pound Chevrolet to put him down. Or, to adopt the hypothesis that Laurie would later propose, his strength grows with each victim he eliminates. As his body count rises, 
he metamorphoses into a greater and greater threat. In the initial timeline when I detailed Michael's backstory, I mentioned that he might be able to bear down and delay the recharge for a while. Bit in extremely tense circumstances. It's not impossible but the same thing occurred here. He delayed performing a recharge after being shot until the impact of the car rendered him unconscious. He has never been sidelined for so long. He sleeps for 4 minutes and 45 seconds, which is longer than any nap he has ever taken before. Deputy Hawkins raises his gun to shoot him in the head at this point, but Dr. Sartain escapes to save his life's work. Sartain attacks Hawkins when he refuses to surrender, and Michael is stuck inside the car along with Allison. The Cage of Laurie Strode He sets out for Laurie Strode's residence in the hopes of witnessing the two of them reunite. Michael's obsession with finding Laurie Strode may be what saves his life, according to Sartain. Both the thrill of playing the role of predator and the terror of playing the role of prey likely contribute to and keep them, or them, alive. This wasn't the first time Lori had said something negative about her competitor. He had been anticipating tonight. He was holding out for me. If her understanding is correct, then we might not have to wait too much longer. Michael awakens in the police car and kicks through the divider, rendering himself immobile. These steel dividers are specifically meant to protect the front seat cops from the unpredictable behavior of the suspects they are transporting. It's crazy that Michael can kick down this wall. He forcibly removes his physician from the vehicle, giving Allison a chance to flee while Michael watches helplessly. Seems unconcerned, he's too busy trying to smash Sartain's face in with his boot. He stomps down hard on the man's head, providing further proof that the shape has been up to no good. Him fit, he's not going to skip leg day. Look at that carefully, Mikey. He then swiftly dispatches the two police officers who had been waiting outside Lori's home. One is changed into a man-o-lantern after having his throat slit with the pen blade stolen from Sartain, and the other is killed outright. Not that sort of jack-o-lantern, please. The pain from this sort appears to be comparable. A police cruiser is parked in front of Lori's house, and Michael flags down her son-in-law. Michael uses a chain to choke Ray, thus Ray takes a hit as well. If this were a prize from 1978, we'd give it to Linda Vander Klock. Michael puts Ray in a closet after he has strangled him with a telephone cord. However, he can't do anything until he breaks inside the house. Shattering glass, Lori is almost killed by the unexpected action. It reminds me of a scene earlier in the film in which the police ordered the populace to lock their doors and stay inside. When Michael Myers is wild, there is no sure defense, not even Lori's stronghold can survive his physical might. She manages to lift her shotgun at him, and he grips the barrel, losing two fingers in the process, maybe in an effort to deflect the explosion away from his head. You can see Michael as he lets go right here, the action is so fast I had to obscure it so the YouTube boogeyman wouldn't get me. Has lost a finger and just has three fingers left. The topic of Michael's injury management in this timeline is timely. It's clear that Michael is extremely resilient, as there is really only one means to kill him and no other method of significant harm. However, he is still susceptible to scarring, 
as evidenced by the visible marks left by each of his major injuries. First, Lori stabs him with a knitting needle. The medical staff at the clinic observed the scar on his neck. Also, Lori uses a coat hanger to poke him in the eye. You catch a fleeting glance of the escaped inmate's eye when he's free, and it's clouded over, as if he's blind in that eye. He's been shot in the chest and stabbed multiple times. To be honest, I wouldn't mind seeing him shirtless in the Halloween Beach Ovier. Certainly those wounds would become visible as well. When they first heard Halloween H20, that's what the Michael Myers fangirls thought of. But the point is, he is now stuck with only three fingers because he tried to cover the gun's cap with his thumb and forefinger. Left hand, although his disability doesn't significantly slow him down, it's reasonable to assume that you could render him harmless by amputating all of his body parts at some point. Both the original timeline and the 20-year timeline show him getting shot in both eyes and blown apart, but he eventually regenerates and appears good again. Despite this setback, he continues to break into the house while Lori hides in the basement and fires through the floorboards above him. As I indicated before, he delays going after her in order to hide Ray's corpse. Even if he's not a great person, at least he maintains everything neat and orderly. After a thorough search of the house, Lori eventually tracks him down to an upstairs bedroom that is eerily similar to the one where they had their fight four decades earlier. However, she is the aggressor once again, and just as Dr. Sartain warned, they are both trying to take on the role of predator. Michael attacked her with a knife in 1978, but she was able to turn the knife on him. Now Lori has the knife, but Michael is the one who figures out how to use it. Versus her. Lori Strode was hungry, and she let out a grunt as she bit his hand. Lori, however, is the one who ends up falling off the balcony this time, prompting Michael to target her adolescent granddaughter. Squeaky hinges, effect. Somber music, Allison returns home, seeking refuge under her grandmother's care, but Michael is waiting for her. First to notice her arrival. Nonetheless, Lori uses Michael's momentary diversion to her advantage by setting him up for another of her tricks. The best way to disappear is to reserve a hotel room. He goes downstairs to try to eliminate Lori's descendants once and for all. Karen, Lori's daughter, asks her mother to come help, but it turns out to be a trap. Oh, right. Firearm discharge, in the face. Lori leaps out of hiding and launches an assault. Michael does strike her with the fire poker, but she returns the hit and knocks him down to the basement with a frying pan. This initiates the night's second recharging phase. In those few seconds, Allison and Karen are able to make it to higher ground and locked down the prison's sole exit. Michael is locked in a cage Lori built for him, which is large enough to hold a basement. She's proving to be a much stronger opponent than he gave her credit for. She flicks a switch that turns on all the gas in the home, and he can only watch in disbelief. Go down into the basement and set fire to the man who has plagued her dreams for the better part of her adult life. Michael, however, remains unfazed by the chaos unfolding around him, his vacant gaze remaining fixed on her as it has been from the start. Away out of the flames. The quick response time of the fire department is only one perk of living in a small town. It's typically a plus, at least. 
One of Haddonfield's finest stumbles down the stairs into the basement, which appears to be vacant. Michael Myers emerges from Laurie's gun closet like a spider carrying a fly in its web. The firefighter's own Halligan bar is used viciously against him, smashing the mask and face. Another firefighter responds to his mayday call and comes to offer assistance, but Michael appears out of the haze and drags him to the cellar. In spite of the best efforts of the rescue team, the home eventually collapsed. Make a route out, and a form will materialize at the exit. It's the shape, still as calm as ever despite being burned alive in the trap lorry set for him. As he clenches his new weapon with the eight fingers he still has. The fire department has plenty of weapons to strike back, including axes, circle saws, and the advantage of numbers, but Michael Myers eliminates them one by one. Michael kills eleven men before he is done. The body count is at eleven. All of them work as emergency personnel. Maybe it's as young Tommy Doyle hypothesized back in the day. The boogeyman is immortal. Nonetheless, as we covered, he is not invulnerable to harm, and his left hand is still in the healing process. Searching for medical equipment. He breaks into Phil and Sandra Larson's house without their knowledge and steals some medical equipment from their bathroom. He probably doesn't realize what he's doing when a small drone lands in the bathroom and he throws it. It into the living room, where the terrified residents could see it and draw their attention to it. After Phil turns on the lights, Michael is momentarily visible, spraying the area with disinfectant. The basin was covered with dirty bandages and washcloths. After Michael shatters the light and Phil shuts the door, Michael uses the force of the shattered light to power his. Pulls him down through the shattered glass and bludgeons his head against the wall. He performs it completely with his good hand, only using his bandaged one to help grab Phil's head at the end, showing how rapidly he is learning to adapt. Using the fingers he still had. As Sandra grabs a tiny knife off the block to defend herself, Michael grabs a fluorescent tube lamp from above the stove. He stabs it through her neck and twists it, causing her to scream and cry. As he prepares to leave, Michael throws Phil's alive body onto the kitchen table and proceeds to stab him repeatedly with various knives until he finds one that does the job. Whenever he can, he goes for a stroll outside. Michael returns home with his hand bandaged and a new knife in tow, but he soon discovers that he has lost his way. The park as a shortcut. To get there, he'd have to take a cross-town trip. As the calendar turns to early November, he walks around Haddonfield. First, 2018. He strolls across a park, where he is seen engaging in his typical stalker behavior. Lindsay, did you see him somewhere? He's only ducking for cover in the bushes. And then he suddenly appears, and I say, peekaboo. We are not, after all, preschoolers. Ah, uh, come on. Michael is able to retrieve a straying child from the group without arousing suspicion. We don't see what happened, but the kid's mask is wet with the blood of the victims. These youngsters look like they're in their early teens, maybe 13, so I'm going to assume that Michael's no-kill threshold for human life begins at that age. He overhears the two other teenagers chatting to someone he recognizes from his past. Annie was babysitting Lindsay Wallace, the girl pictured here. 
from Michael 480 months ago. 40 years. I feel like I constantly repeating myself, so I just wanted to switch things up. Marion Chambers and two other people are in the SUV he finds. He does the same thing he did to her back in 1978, climbing on top of the car and grabbing her through the open window. Through the roof's open window, but this time she's armed. When he finally comes down to meet her in person, she already has a comeback planned out. Excuse me, Michael. Please forward to Dr. Loomis. Let's get our revenge on Dr. Loomis, then. This timeline's lone case of someone who appears to have died of natural causes. Michael benefits from the failure of her tribute to her former co-worker because she has no more ammunition. Marion trembling and babbling about the pistol. After he stabs her four times from the window, the man in the back seat uses a fake stethoscope to strangle him. Michael is unfazed and finishes the man off by jabbing him in the left eye with the knife. Who knows? Maybe Michael heard it from Laurie Strode. The man's wife returns to the car, revolver in hand, and Michael executes a death that seems more at home in a first-person shooter montage than a Halloween film. Horns and cheers, just as Michael is about to make his signature head tilt of corpse admiration, he is hit over the head with a bag of bricks. Hit Lindsay square in the face. Although she is one of just four people who managed to escape the babysitting murders, she severely underestimates him, and he pushes her against the car while choking her. Nonetheless, she benefits from her background knowledge because she is able to employ the same strategy as Lori. Used to free themselves from the boogeyman's hold by ripping off his mask. After fixing it, he walks at his usual pace alongside her as they enter the forest. At this point, our progress is fairly modest, yet nevertheless somewhat alarming. The SUV couple is then mysteriously relocated to the park's carousel. The top of the swing set in Marion is adorned with the witch mask the teenagers abandoned. Michael is seen leaving the scene in search of Lindsay, therefore this can only be the reason why. What's stopping Michael from murdering children? Is that he revisited the crime scene to change its layout. And to be fair, that fits with who he is as a person. In 1978, he set up a situation with Annie, Linda, and Bob, and he still remembers the details. In reference to the earlier 2018 presentation of Vicky and Ray. The frequency with which I've noticed this pattern has prompted me to investigate its cause. As the reason for it. I can only make educated guesses based on the hints provided, as with many other facets of the character. The first scene appeared to be an exact reproduction of his sister's grave location from when Michael was a child, the second showed dead people having fun on a playground. A typical hangout for young people. We know Michael has mental health problems since he committed his first murder when he was a child. Have spent the last 55 years in a psychiatric institution. Perhaps the trauma he had as a child kept him from growing up and developing an adult perspective. Perhaps he considers the bodies to be playthings and refrains from killing children because he recognizes them as being similar to himself. This theory would also account for his planned next move. As a result of Michael Myers visiting his old house. Effect, calm tunes. Michael Myers is inspired by the movie Jaws. 
After Michael escaped from Smith's Grove for the first time, he went back to his old house. It had fallen into disrepair, but other than the wear and tear of time, it appeared to be unchanged. This time around, the property wasn't abandoned. He'd discover Big John and Little John living there. Probably because he used it right before he killed Judith, he slips in through the back door. The fact that he leaves a fingerprint on the doorframe with three fingers is intriguing, too. Given Tommy's remarks at the clinic, the resemblance to a dinosaur track seems fitting. He's the top dog among predators. Doctor. Sartain likens him to a shark, another top predator, in his description. He has no other skills but perpetual motion and murder. And if he isn't caught, he will kill again. That's not a typo, by the way. Director David Gordon Green spoke with Halloween movies. Calm about his process for making the film. Used Jaws as a sort of model for this Michael Myers. You could compare it to Jaws in certain aspects. The shark doesn't have much of a character. In a technical sense, he is really difficult to pin down, so we are attempting to not go too far from that. It seems the same message was relayed to mask designer Christopher Nelson, who seems to have avoided looking too far into the character's backstory. And it turned out to be this extremely odd mannequin-like thing with no soul, like a great human white sharks. A silent predator hunts its prey in this scenario, reminiscent of the first minutes of Jaws. To the Myers home, please. Without anyone noticing, Michael makes his way upstairs and draws Big John. And for good measure, he tries to squeeze his eyes right out of their sockets. After that, Michael goes back to peering out his sister's window like he did when he was a kid. He responds to Little John's greeting by walking over to meet him. He will soon be dead too, just like his companion. The Little John yells, New. He arranges the skeletons of the two Johns in a study picture replica, only with their. The roles are reversed. If you're curious about the relevance of that, you may catch my things you missed in Halloween Kills video right after this one. Michael's affinity for the shadows is another quality that has repeatedly been brought to light. I can identify with this one. After recovering his own home in 1978, he did the same thing we saw him do when he took over the Wallace house, he turned off all the lights. This allows him to more easily stalk his victim in the cover of darkness. Michael briefly met Lonnie Elam outside the building, he is Michael's next victim. Myers's house after evading Dr. Loomis's lab. He's no longer a juvenile and so a fair game. He dispatches Lonnie swiftly and tosses him into the attic, then retreats to a hidden location and waits for rescue. Cameron, Lonnie's son, and a teenager at the time, is that person. Michael suddenly emerges from hiding and pins him against the wall, where he can knife him. Frequently, on a number of occasions. Allison, Cameron's girlfriend, marches in with a shotgun, which he deflects effortlessly, but not before she lands multiple knife punches into his stomach and he knocks her face onto the ground hits the handrail and throws her down the flight. Allison wants to spark a fight, so after he kills Cameron, she dares him to come and get her. A diversion, but he doesn't go after her until after he's finished breaking Cameron's neck with a 180-degree twist. Michael's quick reflexes and strength are an easy match for Allison, 
but her mother comes to the rescue by stabbing Michael in the back with the pitchfork. Located on the entrance porch. This is one of the most devastating blows we've ever seen against him. He seems to wince in pain for a second before he's thrown to the floor. Why is this pitchfork more lethal than the several stabs and gunfire he's taken during the night? This reminds me of the need for a rest and recharge. Let's pretend for a second that Michael is a Pokemon. His HP total is predetermined. His health bar will decrease with each attack, but he will continue moving at full speed until it reaches zero. Falls to zero. When that happens, he passes out and needs to recover for a while before he can continue fighting again. You can knock him out cold as many as you like, it won't kill him. Unlike Gary, he is not Raticate. Soundtrack to the Lavender Town Syndrome In all likelihood, Michael's death was caused by the combination of the pitchfork and the subsequent head stomp. However, this rest interval is rather brief, giving Karen just enough time to grab Michael's mask, a tried-and-true strategy for diverting his attention. He pays no attention to Allison, who is in danger, and instead follows Karen as she taunts him and leads him past backyards and side yards and into another street, which is also a trap. Mob versus Michael a swarm of irate Haddonfield locals and their noisy pickup vehicles had descended upon him. To hell with automobiles. Their leaders are Tommy Doyle, the youngster who was being babysat by Lori at the time of the murder, and Lee Brackett, the father of the babysitter Annie, whose life he famously cut short 40 years earlier. Her meeting with Michael later the same evening. In addition to guns, the gang also has shovels, pipes, baseball bats, and a single female member with a hockey stick. Brings along an iron. Not a golf club, but shaped like an iron to press clothes. After surrounding Michael, they launch a devastating strike from behind his shield. Side, pounding him mercilessly while he's down on the ground with close-range shots and a stepped-up beating. He loses his knife and has trouble picking it up, so when Karen, the man's wife, grabs the blade Michael has spent his entire life practicing to use against him and plunges it into his upper back. It appears that Michael has met his equal and his time may have come to an end. Brackett lines up the gun to make sure, but Myers quickly takes the knife from his own back and slashes Brackett's throat open. Michael's skills appear to improve from here on out. Observing Michael's apparent growth, Laurie Strode comes up with an idea. Challenge to win over. She thinks that his inhuman killing sprees are a gateway to another dimension. To demolish, wreck, or pull down. I believe my Pokémon comparison works just fine for this as well. The more Pokémon you battle and defeat, the more experience you'll earn. Raises your status to a new level. Michael's talents seem to improve after killing Lee Brackett, the same attackers who were easily overwhelming him before are now easily outmaneuverable and outgunned. With only a little luck, come on, Hanfield, you need to learn to count your bullets, he eliminates them one by one until there are none left. Tom and him. They make eye contact as Michael delivers the knockout blow. Michael's gaze penetrates Tommy's, but all he sees are black holes. The mask is what drew my attention. Another case of incongruous effect occurs when the mask prevents him from seeing the human aspects of his face when darkness falls. Now that the crowd is under control, 
Michael sneaks back to his station in Judith's old bedroom despite the noise of the police and ambulances. He sees Karen staring out the window where he usually stands, but by the time she spots him in the reflection, it's too late. After Karen's death, the shape reassumes leadership of Haddonfield. Is there some intrinsic motivation at work in Michael Myers's behavior? What effect does Michael's crime have on him, Dr. Sartain? Exactly how do you feel? Is he just going where the wind takes him, or does he have some sort of motivation behind his actions? Caused by an external factor. Perhaps he had an unspoken directive etched into his soul. I need to know how he really feels. I'm curious as to his motivations for killing. Dr. Sartain, in his research into the criminal mentality, almost became one. He hoped to learn more about Michael by watching him in natural settings. Even though this was a huge mistake, might it be argued that seeing Michael's escape was worth it? For the third time, clarifies his meaning to us? That aids in determining his tendencies? Provides insight into the criminal mind? Maybe. You, the viewer, are responsible for determining the validity of any claims made in this video's analysis. Any more weight than the findings of any of the 50 psychiatrists who evaluated him while he was in custody. Although I am confident in the information presented in this lesson, I would stop short of calling it absolute. For the most part because of what comes after. The pattern is broken right as we believe we have Michael figured out. Contrary to popular belief, he does not end up back in captivity. This time Michael is able to escape. Michael takes cover below ground. The search for the guy suspected of killing 27 people on Halloween night in Hanfield, Illinois, continues on Friday. Michael Myers, 61, is the suspected perpetrator, but he has disappeared. He has a knife and should be treated as armed and dangerous. In early November, after Michael Myers' deadliest crime spree ever, that's what the headlines read. But they were incorrect in two respects. Michael's body count is the first indicator. It's more like 57, they probably haven't even counted all the bodies yet. With the exception of a select handful whose ultimate fate is never revealed. The second mistake is assuming that Michael has left the region. Most likely, he has now gone underground to wait out the drama in relative peace. At some point, I think he made an effort to return home, only to discover that his old house had been razed and never emerged into the drain. For the next four years, Halloween would bring more murders, all of which would be solved. To take Michael's spirit as an inspiration but not his actions. Megan isn't the only one who vanished on Halloween and was never seen again. In October of 2021, Baxter. Police never implicated Michael Myers in any of it, but testimony from those who encountered him suggests he did, in fact, shelter at least a few victims at this period. This vagrant who often can be found beside the drain. Do you recognize that man inside? Every once in a while, he'll let somebody in. That begs the question, why did he let you go? Since the authorities appear to be relying on speculation rather than hard evidence, we have no idea whether or not Michael was responsible for the abductions of all of the victims. Actual proof, for whatever purpose. Is it possible that he has returned? Michael is not a gun person. 
That makes no sense to me at all. Michael may never shoot a gun, but that doesn't mean he won't at some point. He had never used a Halligan bar to commit murder before, but. Then he did. Furthermore, even if he didn't fire the fatal shot, one of his victims still died from a gun wound. In order to get to the sewers, I imagine he did most of his killing at the entrance. Conceal your identity. Megan Baxter's vanished billboard, for instance, is conveniently located close to this flyover. Sense that they would want to put this close to where she vanished, therefore Michael presumably abducted her. Corey Cunningham, in person. A young guy called Corey Cunningham is thrown off an overpass in the month of October 2022, landing in the midst of the hobo settlement below. Where Michael kidnaps him and carries him far beneath the city. It's odd that he doesn't finish off Corey while he's out cold. Michael tries to strangle Corey as he runs away, but the two men lock eyes and a signal appears to be exchanged, allowing Corey to get away. There is no real explanation for why Michael lets Corey survive, but we do learn what makes Allison so keen on him. I know what it's like to feel like everyone in the room recognizes you. Considering themselves to be in your shoes when in reality they are not. Perhaps Michael and Corey share some common ground, after all. On the next day, October 29, Corey lures Doug Mullaney, a police officer, into the sewer where he knows Michael is waiting for him. Officer Mullaney is jumped by Michael, but Michael is taken down by a strong blow from Mullaney. But Corey steps in and attacks Mullaney, pleading with Michael to demonstrate his killing techniques. Corey holds Mullaney down as Michael retrieves a rusty old knife, likely the same one from the Larson's residence, and slashes Mullaney's throat and stabs him multiple times. Repeated numerous times. Michael's body comes back to life and he stabs Mullaney with all his renewed might. Several more times, each time with more velocity and intensity. The more people Michael kills, the more he seems to enjoy it, supporting Lori's theory. The source of Michael Myers' strength is a mystery. More potent he will become. But now, he seems much weaker than he did last year. My initial thinking was that going without murdering for a while could deplete his strength. Contradicts his elopement from four years ago. In his 40 years at Smith's Grove, he had never killed anyone, but he still had a lot of regrets. Capability of defeating the bus's whole guard force. It's possible that Michael's strength is waning with age, and he must maintain his efforts despite this. To keep his strength up by killing. I also have this nagging suspicion that his authority does not come from his ability to kill. Yet perhaps his frightening reputation is what gives him influence. This would clarify why his influence grows in 1978 while Lori's does not. Is still around for those who hold on to their boogeyman beliefs. Then in 2018, his fame skyrocketed even further. Reporters from all over the world are showing up in Henfield to look into him. He gained notoriety throughout the year with each murder he committed, giving the impression that his killings were giving him strength. But in 2019, Corey Cunningham became the new villain of Haddonfield when he murdered the child he was watching. Corey, not Michael, was suddenly the sole focus of fear, and Michael had to share the spotlight. I can't stop picturing his gaze. Michael's glare. With Corey.
The only problem with this argument is that he allegedly murdered Officer Mullaney behind closed doors. Even before word of his death spreads the town, Michael is restored to power. But Corey is the lone eyewitness to this. Michael, even if he just has himself to entertain, breathes new life into an old urban tale, which in turn revitalizes the legend. I've mentioned this aspect of Michael's past several times, perhaps his reputation as an urban legend is relevant here as well. Criticizing Deb Michael then follows Corey back to Lori's new house, where he catches the lady he's spent the past 44 years with looking through her own windows. Like he did when he was a kid, at a young couple. His following night out with Corey takes him to Dr. Mathis's house, Allison's whole boss. He looks on as the kid with the scarecrow mask leads him away. Mathis's girlfriend locks him out of the house, and Corey has no way of contacting her before she does so. Michael is there waiting for her right now. For the first time in four years, he demonstrates his full might by pinning her up. Against the wall, knife in hand, like he had previously done with Bob Sims and Dave. I mentioned before that Michael's head tilt indicates he is enjoying the sight of his kill. Resembles a piece of art, this is emphasized by the fact that Deborah is tacked over a mural. The next day, October 31st, is a pivotal date. Once again, Halloween arrived in Hanfield, and this time, the town's iconic boogeyman would not let the holiday pass without paying his final visit. Impact Michael's Final Trick or Treat Dripping horror music, Michael's favorite holiday gets off to a sour start when Corey rushes down into the sewers. Fighting him, taking his mask off of his face, and pinning him to the ground. He says you're just a man in a Halloween mask as he does so. He sees Michael as just another guy, so maybe it helps him dominate Michael. He was completely wrong. We know Michael will do anything to regain possession of his mask. Somehow, he follows Corey to the Strode residence and enters through the back. In order to put on his disguise again. Corey is already dead when Michael arrives, and he looks to be lying in the entryway. As Michael reaches for his knife, Shape suddenly comes to life and snatches his hand. Corey seems to have taken some time off for his own recharge period, nevertheless, I will be there soon. I'll get back to you on that in a minute. Michael, once again the top predator, breaks Corey's neck. He can give his full concentration to his final fight with Laurie Strode. Attracted by the sound of the microwave, he enters the room, only to discover that someone is moving around. Out of a cloakroom. The microwave's contents explode even before Michael opens it, but the meal he's served is unharmed. That one he really wanted to happen. Because while he is distracted, Lori can come out of hiding with a fire extinguisher and knock the knife out of his hand. It's hilarious that little old Lori Strode used a fire extinguisher to disarm Michael when eleven fully equipped firemen failed. But he manages to seize her and throw her head against a china cabinet. To prevent her from escaping, he pushes her to the ground and stomps on her throat with his boot. Because she cannot reach his mask to remove it. She instead responds by kicking the other of his knees. Michael turns on the garbage disposal and tries to force her hand into it while the struggle continues. This is not simply a reference to Halloween H20, but also, from Michael's perspective, payback for the fight they had four years prior, 
during which Lori blew off his face. Pointing a firearm at my fingers. That was the most hurt anyone had ever done to him since, as I said before. In this universe, Michael can't simply regrow his fingers, so he's planning to get his revenge by disfiguring some of hers. But with a swift headbutt, she's able to escape, and it so happens. That there happens to be a knitting needle lying around, so she attempts the attack again since it worked in 1978, only this time he's ready. Now that he knows where she got him before, he tries to get his revenge by impaling her face with the needle. However, this time she is able to go close enough to physically remove. She uses his own knife to pin his hand to the counter while he's distracted, leaving him with one arm. She holds him down to the island with her bare hands, then she takes a knife from her own drawer and plunges it into his chest. It's ironic that he's back in the same predicament he left Phil Larson in four years ago for Halloween. I speculated that Michael might occasionally be able to forego his rest period and keep going full steam ahead in order to extricate himself from a sticky situation. That's exactly what occurs here, in just four seconds, he sits up so strongly that he knocks Lori off of him. She realizes she can't stop Michael from moving or kill him with recharge periods, so she tries to paralyze him instead. While holding his other hand down with the knife and using the frying pan as a hammer to drive the final nail into the cross. When he realizes he has no means of protection, he flinches, but Lori isn't taking any chances, so she pins his leg to the island by overturning the refrigerator. For the first time in his life, Michael is completely paralyzed. Even in the death trap she set for him in her former residence, he was still free to go wherever he pleased. Navigate your way out of the basement. At this point, he was trapped, Lori took full advantage of the circumstance by snatching. Her chef's knife, Michael's favorite in the one he used to destroy so many families, and made him take a final look in the mirror. After all, if Deputy Hawkins's explanation is correct, Michael was never gazing out the window towards the Myers house, he was staring at himself in the mirror. The face of Michael Myers. Lori pokes her adversary in the side, prompting him to take off his mask and give her one more look. Among the first people to see the 1978 Halloween film, there appears to be a phenomenon. In the scene where Lori first takes off his mask, many viewers said they noticed a malformed face, although it was actually just actor Tony Moran's true face. The previous scene was lit eerily, and a minor injury prosthesis was used to depict the wound Lori had caused herself with the coat hanger. The audience was supposedly projecting their fears onto Tony, and I can only think that this was far worse than any bogeyman could have been. Their anticipation of a terrifying experience, and the actual terror they felt when viewing that scene. The unmasking in 2022 has the opposite effect, since Michael is actually quite malformed. Through many stab wounds, gunfire to the face, and, of course, the fire that looks to have burned his ear off and left him with burns that nearly rival one of his eyes, he has managed to survive till this point. This is Mr. Frederick Kruger. This time, however, we are spared a direct view of his face, leaving some of the horror to the viewer's own interpretation. Michael Myers's Tragic Demise Michael's throat is slashed cleanly and decisively by Lori, but he survives. Myers is quite close to being invincible, possibly even closer than she thinks. 
It doesn't matter that he needs to rip his hand apart to free it from the knife. Because he still has a firm hold on Lori's throat and she can't get away from him. Inexplicably, she seems to be encouraging him from here. Do it. Do it. When Michael got her cornered at the mall four years earlier, her granddaughter used a very similar excuse. Myers is home, and the only evident result was death. However, it turned out that she was actually speaking to her mother, who was holding the pitchfork and stood behind him. Here, too, Lori is using her words to make someone else seem to be the hero, and that person is Allison. Michael's arm is broken on the counter as she yanks it away from her grandmother. Really, I had no idea she had it in her. Lori, free to breathe again, slices Michael's wrist, apparently believing that this will be the end of him until Deputy Hawkins and the police come. A Michael. It's too late, he passed away. Not quite dead yet. Finally, someone with any sanity has spoken up. Only Allison appears to be cognizant of the need for a rest and recharge. Michael is hauled up to the car's roof and secured there with a rope. Knowing Michael as I do, I would choose something a little bit sturdier, but that's just me. Many people of Hanfield follow the police in a march to the dump. In order to guarantee that Michael would not be able to pull off another spectacular escape like he did in 2018. After being unfastened, he crowd-surfs his way to the industrial shredder. Watch out, he's the bad guy. Lori, having lost her best friends, daughter, son-in-law, and many others close to her, is the one who finally throws Michael's body into the gears, where he will be ground to dust. Becomes fragmented and smashed beyond recognition. There wouldn't be a headstone either. No monument. The boogeyman exists only in folklore. But even if his physical form has been destroyed, does it mean the monster has been vanquished for good? Maybe. But perhaps not. Impact. The path forward for the Halloween film series. Somber piano music, has Michael Myers finally met his end? Has the seventh Halloween film been the last? They could always reboot the system or create a new timeline branch, but it wouldn't serve their needs. With this clip, let's zero in on Michael Myers in his 40-year-old form. It's official, Michael Myers the man is dead. As we have seen throughout this chronology, his wounds are irreparable and he suffers complete physical dismemberment on multiple occasions. However, in Halloween Ends, we witnessed Michael's malice spreading throughout Haddonfield. It began with Halloween Night's random crimes, but for Corey Cunningham, it quickly became much more. Who started heading in the same direction as Michael, wanting the mask for no apparent reason, and recovering from death after a brief recharge. He is left lying in Lori's foyer, and it is never revealed whether or not he is brought back to life. Producer Mustafa Akkad inserted a unique condition into the contract for each Halloween movie, which you may or may not know about. So that Akkad could make money off the IP forever, the filmmakers were not allowed to kill Michael Myers. Since Michael was seemingly killed off in age 20, the producers decided to retcon his story in Resurrection made a deal with him that allowed them to make it seem like Michael had died, but required them to remove the effect at the beginning of the following film, leading to the creation of this entire situation. Where Michael changed into the EMT's uniform and he was the one whose head was severed. 
It's incredibly stupid, but it's yet another factor in Michael's reveal. His death in Halloween Ends is pivotal since it confirms Laurie's suspicion that she is indeed killing the villain. Although Mustafa Akkad passed away in 2005, his son Malik Akkad reportedly contains many of his father's provision in his legal agreements. The uncertainty of what happened to Corey Cunningham makes me question if there was another motive. Take care of the Akkads. By killing Michael Myers at age 64, Malik gains control of Corey's body. Replacement Michael. Corey's age, 21, mirrors Michael's in the first film. So it's possible to make a fresh start there. I'm not suggesting that's what I anticipate will occur. It would be more practical to either create a new chronology branch or return to the franchise's anthology concept and create further stories set on Halloween night, much like Halloween 3 did. I'd like to see just that. It may have ended that way for contractual reasons, but I believe there was also an artistic motivation. This could have been the intended ending that David Gordon Green and Danny McBride were going for. Maybe they intended us to think that the evil that motivated Michael Myers still exists, and that it has found a new host in Corey Cunningham or someone else. There's a moment when Lindsay reads tarot cards with Allison and the opening titles feature a never-ending cycle of reborn jack-o'-lanterns. That only implies that one major chapter is closing and another is opening, Lindsay. The phrase evil dies tonight was used so many times throughout the trilogy that it became annoying. It became something of a meme, but if there's one thing I learned from Michael's story, it's that there's only so much you can do to stop evil. Conquer the bad. Unfortunately, bad people will always exist. There's no point in barricading yourself within your home and becoming obsessed with it, because there's always going to be some new kind of bad around the corner. If you liked this video, I also broke down Michael Myers's original timeline. Before we go, I want to express my gratitude to each and every one of you for tuning in and being a part of our podcast community. Your support means the world to us. If you want to support this channel even more and help us create more amazing content, you have the option to contribute by sending a donation. Every contribution goes a long way in helping us improve and bring you even more captivating episodes. Remember, your support is what keeps us going and allows us to continue exploring fascinating topics, interviewing intriguing guests, and delivering valuable insights. So, if you're interested in supporting us, you can find the donation link in the description below. Even the smallest contribution can make a big difference. Once again, thank you for being a part of our podcast journey. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button and turn on the notification bell, so you never miss an episode. Thank you for watching, and until next time, stay curious, stay engaged, and keep exploring the world beyond the code.